Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. A look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. It's not about the money, really. It's about us, we the people, and how we deploy resources or how we choose to hoard resources. And if we can somehow shift away from this need to, to hoard and, and the scarcity mindsets, if we can understand the concept of having enough, like, right, and like being secure in that and, and get back to being rooted in relationships, because, you know, the money won't save us at the end of the day. It's really about relationships and connections. If we fall into need, knowing that our community will take care of us that, and how we deploy money and how we use it can contribute to, to healing and restoring communities. That's our guest, award-winning author Edgar Villanueva, whose recent book, Decolonizing Wealth, addresses some of the core issues that surround the existence of massive sums of money that reside in a relative handful of hands. Much of it is old money, and much of it was gathered from the systems of exploitation and oppression that built America and much of the Western world. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. You may recall that Ellen and I recently interviewed Chuck Collins, the heir to the Oscar Mayer fortune who renounced that wealth and authored the recent book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. His exposition on that theme makes a perfect segue for our discussion today about philanthropy its roots in American history, and its role in the current American economic fabric. But also, it's a chance to put our relationship with money into a different perspective, one that takes a broader view of how money expresses our commitment and concerns for each other, for the common well-being, the commonwealth, if you will. Villanueva's book expands a provocative analysis of a racist colonial dynamic at play in philanthropy and finance and leads us to consider how each of us can help heal systemic inequities and how philanthropy in particular needs to be reimagined. He presents an inescapable truth that systemic racism and colonial structures are foundational principles in our economies. The $1 trillion philanthropic industry is but one example of a system that mirrors oppressive colonial behavior, even though that industry's name means the love for humankind. Later in the program, we'll be discussing with other guests how the glamorous and altruistic facade of philanthropy has served to keep monetary power in the hands of the few, and how the practices of philanthropy need to be reformed, indeed, transformed in order to provide restorative and reparational impacts to the extractive and exploitive character of too many capital investments. Everyone can be a healer to this system and a leader in restoring balance, says Villanueva. 
He writes, all of our suffering is mutual, all our healing is mutual, and all our thriving is mutual. Our later discussion with guests will explore some of these dimensions and how we can move to a new intentional prospect for the peoples of the world. Here's Ellen. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Edgar Villanueva, who is an award-winning author, activist, and expert on issues of race, wealth, and philanthropy. Edgar is the principal of the Decolonizing Wealth Project, which is the name of his website, decolonizingwealth.com, right? Right. And Liberated Capital, and author of the best-selling book, Decolonizing Wealth, which is what we'll be talking about, which just came out in its second edition. Uh, he advises a range of organizations, including national and global philanthropies, Fortune 500 companies, and entertainment and media agencies on social impact strategies to advance racial equity. So, Edgar, it's great to be meeting you, actually, for the first time. <laughs> you too, Ellen. It's an honor. Oh, thanks. So your book, I must say, you're you're a very engaging writer. It's in what I would call an easy read and an engaging read. Um, so you're a storyteller. I guess that you get that from your your native roots. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's largely an autobiography. So we could start there. Do you want to say how it is you got into this field of philanthropy and you know your roots and so forth? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate that. My intentions were to write a book that would try to make some really complicated, difficult uh, concepts or conversations really easy. And um, the sector can be super intellectual. And I thought the last thing that we need is really just another kind of academic researchy book about this stuff and really wanted to bring the personal story into it. My story is one of being, uh, I am Native American, enrolled in the, in the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina, and uh, I grew up there um, in, a, uh, in a family that has little wealth, a community that is um, very impoverished in a lot of ways, and um, definitely um, am not a person that you would typically find their way into the space or sector of philanthropy. Um, which tends to be super, you know, privileged, um, mostly white folks. And a lot of folks who come from wealth are very privileged types of backgrounds. And uh, I got into a foundation a job at age 28. I was fairly young um, for my role as well. And um, really was uh, just taken aback by um all the things and dynamics that were going on in this space and, and under the name of philanthropy and um, really had had a, a great career and lots of great experiences and loved this work uh, to the point where I was like, you know, if we're really serious about changing communities, if we're really serious about diversity and equity and, and inclusion, there are some things that we should know, especially from the perspectives of, of folks of color who have been inside of the ivory tower working. So I share those stories and um, in an attempt to sort of call us to a better place. Okay, and you said that your mother worked three jobs. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like you came up from serious poverty. I like the part where you said that in your community, there's no such thing as poverty or was there's, there's no word for poverty, I think, because it's just unknown not to have 
a community that would, you know, could provide food or whatever you need in in extreme circumstances. I don't know. Can you describe some of that? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I um I I didn't really know that we were as poor as we were until later <laughs> in life. Where, you know, um, you know, because there there is a sense that we have what we need, right? And we had what we needed, and that there that we would be taken care of if things got really bad off. Um, you know, there's um I heard someone say recently that before colonization, we didn't have a homelessness problem because our community would just never put anyone on the street. And, you know, I, I believe that's still true. We absolutely have, you know, Native American folks who are without homes, um, but often it's it's probably because of, you know, it's not because they don't have a family who would take care of them if, situation, if the situation could be changed. Um, but it is, uh, you know, my mom was, um, did work three jobs and she shared with me, she just was just visiting me in, in New York city. And, um, we, we talked about some of this stuff and, 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 you know, kind of, kind of laugh and, and, um, you know, going down memory lane, she said, you know, do you, do you remember there were times at dinner where you were just, you were the only one eating and I was just kind of working around the kitchen. Um, and it was because we only had like one piece of chicken and she was feeding that to me. So we were also just super engaged, um, and helping other people was sort of a part of our culture, a part of our faith tradition. We were very involved in, in a church that was very community oriented. And so although we didn't have everything we needed, probably we spent the bulk of our weekends being out in the community and, and taking care of other folks. And so I think part of our coping and survival um, through our own poverty was to focus on the needs of other people, which made our, our needs much smaller. Um, so yeah, my, I, I say often that my mother was the first philanthropist that I knew, although we didn't have, you know, millions of dollars, we were very much engaged in the process of loving people and taking care of community. And speaking of millions of dollars in your first job, <laughs> yeah. you were in charge of distributing millions of dollars, which must've been made quite an impression on you. And and so what was it like working for a large uh, philanthropic organization? You know, it definitely was it was a, it was a trip when you when you come from a poor community and all of a sudden you're in an organization that has I think uh, the foundation I was working at had something somewhere around uh, 700, 800 million dollars in assets. And we were giving away 25 to 30 million dollars a year. Um, I remember, uh, Ellen, at that time when we sent checks to organizations, we literally wrote checks <laughs> and we, um, you know, so I would have checks at my desk and we would, we would stamp them with a signature and put them in envelopes and mail them, which is kind of um, becoming archaic these days, but that's the way we did business. And I remember literally holding a check in my hand for like $250,000 that we were sending to an organization. And I was like, wow, this is like, more money than anyone has in my family has ever seen. I, I could go out and buy a house with this check, you know? And, <laughs> and so just getting used to seeing all of the zeros behind on, on paper was, was really um, something that was um, really different. Um, also, when you work in these types of positions, there is a sort of um, unearned respect or, you know, um, the ways that people begin to treat you is very different because I had access. It wasn't my money, but I, I was sort of the gatekeeper to these resources. 
And so that came with automatic um, power and privilege in a way that was unusual for me in my situation uh, to be invited to certain events in town or to be all of a sudden in these circles with the mayor, the community, and you know, to be recognized and respected, um, which was something I enjoyed, right? But also helped me understand early on that, wow, there are a lot of folks with privilege who just get these benefits because they have money. Um, and they're not necessarily earned. Um, and there are a lot of us for my community who don't have money and are not invited in, are not networked, um, are not seen as experts or respected just because they don't have money, which is, you know, um, a, a, a conflict that I, I had to hold in this job. Yeah, well, it's a serious conflict in our whole economic system. So we could, you know, look at your title, Decolonizing Wealth. So. Do you want to explain exactly what that means and how we would do it? You know, it's, it's, it is a provocative title. Um, for me, as an indigenous person, we, we kind of think about or talk about colonization a lot in my community because we're still sort of recovering. Um, and, it, you know, from the 500 years of colonization, there's a lot of trauma that remains um, and in fact, we're still experiencing colonization, you know, right now. Uh, today, um, as we're, you know, recording this on uh, September 30, is the National Day of Remembrance for boarding schools um, in this country. Um, we are in the United States. Um, Indian boarding schools existed until um, the 80s, like recently. Uh, my grandparents' generation folks went to boarding schools. This was a process that was ordained by the Catholic Church and by the federal government, where Indian children were removed from their homes, sent away to these boarding schools under the mantra of kill the Indian, save the man, where you weren't allowed to speak the language, practice the culture, hair was cut, and there was this forced assimilation into um, sort of mainstream ways of being and thinking. And so to understand um, for hundreds of years, these types of things that have happened uh, to my community and the resulting trauma is, is just something that is really hard to get your mind around. And colonization was all about money. Uh, most things usually always come back to money, right? <laughs> So colonization, slavery, all of these horrific things that have happened in our nation's history that we're very ashamed of and don't want to talk about are deeply connected to our economic system and to how wealth has been accumulated in this country. Um, any wealthy family um, in this country, if, if they explore their history, chances are it's going to go back to some type of um, you know, back to the slave trade industry or land that was taken away from indigenous people. And it, it just is uh, the, the facts that the accumulation of wealth in this country has been deeply connected to a history of extraction and um, harm to people in the planet. And so when we think about changing that or fixing that or repairing that, it's a process of decolonization, which is you know, not necessarily undoing because we can't, but it, at least acknowledging the truth and um, exploring the way that we can uh, repair that. And, and the same money that has been, that has caused harm can actually help to heal and repair. Now that's a, a good premise if we can do it. Um, you know, so our thing is public banking. We, the people should own the banks. And um, I've written on um, the history of money in the U.S. and so forth. And so I've written on the two that what was 
characterized 200 years ago as the American system versus the British system. And the British system was the colonial system. You know, it was like exploitation, capture countries and exploit. And it, you didn't and have them send back resources to the mother country. That was the whole idea. And when uh, Benjamin Franklin said, oh, we were issuing our own money and it was working great, you know, and every, the colonies were thriving. And uh, so the, uh, the Bank of England leaned on the king, you know, and said, this is not the purpose of colonies. The purpose we're supposed to be to feed the mother country, basically. And, uh, and we still had 200 years later, or more than 200 years later, we still have that system. But the American system was government issued money for productive purposes, public purposes to help the people. And um, speaking of indigenous peoples, we do have several indigenous groups in, well, I know in Washington state, for example, that are looking at setting up their own public bank. But of course, it's good if you already have a fund of money, you know, like gambling money or, or you know, um, that sort of money. But anyway, it's, it's a good model for an area that can declare sovereignty and issue their own money. Okay. And of course, we have such things as, as local, local currencies. But um, on exploitation, it does seem like we're still in that model. I mean, there it's we clearly have an underclass that is that is being exploited of whatever race. Uh, yeah. And in the 200 years ago, it was the Irish as well. So it wasn't necessarily even people of color. Um, yeah. So, so you're talking about decolonizing though. So how would we change this to, um, how do we change the model, which I know is practically, a, you know, a daunting task. We can change our own personal attitudes and you have your seven steps to healing, but, but it almost seems like we would have to change the law in order to change the system. Because as we, you know, as I've written, as we know that, the big philanthropic companies are largely owned by big investors who the idea is to get tax write-offs and they control where the money goes and they invest it in businesses that help their own businesses. So they, you know, even though it's a nonprofit, they're helping the profits of their, their real business. So I don't, I don't know how we would get around that, or I don't know if you've thought about that. I mean, you're, I think you're more addressed on healing the, you know, the attitudes of people and the idea of we're all one and we're all community. But <laughs> so I'm yeah. talking more than you are. So you I mean, no, no, this is great. And I um, appreciate the the work that you've done in the space. Um, yeah. And you're right. I, I think it's a both. And I think that there is a sort of transformation, a shift in the hearts and minds that we have to have as individuals about, about money, about wealth, and um, a coming to terms with our history and, and the trauma that we may have with money, whether we have it or we don't have it, <laughs> you know. Um, and then I do think that at the institutional and sort of systemic level, there's work to be done that is both about a reckoning, a public reckoning with our history in this country, but also um, a role that philanthropy um, can play um, and what has to sh shift in order for philanthropy to show up to be an industry that's actually benefiting in, in more profound ways. Um, you're, you're exactly right in the U.S. context. We don't have a phil philanthropic industry in other countries the way that we have in the U.S. where, you know, because of the tax laws and 
um, that have been created here to, to benefit folks with wealth. The, land, the philanthropic industry was really born out of that. It was born out of a sort of a reputation saving kind of thing, right? Where some of the, the, the early folks had um, that of wealth during the industrial revolution, some bad things happened in their companies. They wanted to cover it up. So they said, well, let's distract by putting money over here, right? And those same wealthy people then said, oh, now that we're putting money over here to support communities in a charitable way, we should go to the government and get them to give us a tax break for it. So the incentives are all wrong from the very beginning in this industry in terms of like why philanthropy exists. Now, philanthropy has done good. Um, there's lots of examples we can point to, but there are fundamental flaws in the way that this system was constructed from the beginning that are, that are still um, still baked into the system that really um, ensure that people with wealth continue to build wealth and uh, philanthropy continues to sort of distract from some of the, the bigger picture things that we should know about. Um, and I, I do think that there might be uh, legislation or a change in policy or laws that might be required to kind of force this industry to, uh, to, to make some corrections. We are seeing because of the good nature of people who work in this field because of the research that's come out and best practices. We are seeing a shift, um, I think, in the way philanthropy is being practiced with more money going to communities of color in the past year than we've seen in a long, long time. But, but still, we, 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 some of that could be questioned around, like, is this about responding to a news cycle or being like, you know, in vogue with the latest and greatest thing? Uh, I, I think that we might have to be consider like legislation from the federal government that would require foundations to pay out money because the vast majority of philanthropic capital is actually in banks or sitting in public markets and not getting to the communities. And we might need to see some legislation that would ensure more transparency and accountability because for the most part, we do our business in the dark and we're not held to any standard. Even banks have a lot more requirements than, you know, than, than we do. So there's very little regulation. I'm not in favor of regulation, but I am in favor of us doing right by, by the community. And if we don't get there on our own, I do think we're gonna see um, you know, more potential legislation and regulation that can, that can fall upon this industry. And then you speak more on the personal level. So your seven steps to healing, do you wanna yeah. say, go through those a bit? Sure, I'm happy to talk about those. So when we think about what's, what's broken or, or where it hurts, um, in terms of the trauma that has come about because of the history of colonization, because of how wealth has been built. Sort of my hypothesis is if the accumulation of wealth has resulted in trauma, is there a role for money to help repair that? Um, and, and I say yes, that money can actually be used in a sacred, as, in a sacred way to actually help heal. Again, we can't undo all the things that have happened, but we can actually deploy resources and capital to communities that have been marginalized um, and privilege those communities so that we can uh, close this, this wealth gap that exists and that's even more disproportional when we think about the race wealth gap. So the seven steps to healing are rooted in indigenous practices of restorative justice. And I um, also kind of bring in the lens of like money as the tangible representation of how we can enact upon that. And it starts by first really acknowledging that the truth and being honest about what has happened um, and grieving that and having a process of, of truth and reconciliation 
um, and actually apologies for how wealth has been used. You know, at the national level, we as a country have uh, never had a process of truth and reconciliation in this country. We other countries have South Africa, Canada, uh, Germany. We've never had any official apologies from the federal government to the human rights violation uh, violations that have occurred against indigenous folks and uh, for slavery even. And so these are major steps that we can take as a nation to begin to get to a place of racial healing. And again, it's all about money. So money is kind of like has like has been like a part of that because we had slavery, we had the taking of land, we had gener uh, genocide all in the name of, of amassing uh, fortunes and hoarding that, those fortunes. And we continue to see policy and systems put in place to ensure the protection of that wealth versus redistributing that wealth to folks that have not had the opportunity to build it. So that's what the healing process is all about. It's really about coming to terms with the truth, agreeing and understanding that we have all been impacted, whether you're white or a person of color, whether you are a have or a have not, we have all been impacted in a negative way because of this system that has been built. And we've got to come together to think about healing that. And it starts with being honest about the truth and in the way that capitalism has harmed our communities and the way that we have not all had equal access. The American dream is an illusion. Um, this is a country where um, there is more opportunity probably for, for everyone than other places, but we still have many systemic barriers in place that limit those opportunities and make it much harder for people of color to push through and for poor working class white people, frankly, to push through as well to get to um, you know, a place of having the same type of opportunities as, as the 1%. So that's what healing is all about. It's just really being honest, ripping the bandaid off where it hurts and, and taking ownership for collective healing and understanding that it's not just about healing that we need to do in native communities or in black communities, but that we all need healing from um, a system and from white supremacy, which is this idea that is not real, that was created. Um, and as you said, even, um, you know, like Irish folks at one point in time, the, the, the definition of who is white has changed over time to serve those in power. And it's, um, it's an idea that has harmed us and we can dismantle that idea so we can all um, heal together and we can think about new ways to redistribute resources and money so that we can all thrive um, and, you know, be our best and thrive in our cultures. Yeah, I think the problem is in our monetary system. I, I'm, I, there's a sense in which, you know, because we're so based on profit or so based on security and we don't really have security, even if you have a million dollar home, you don't have security because if you've got a mortgage on the thing, then you're, you still have to worry about where the next mortgage payment is going to come from. So people never feel secure. So they always feel they have to get out there and make more and more and more, which is obviously a bad model. I mean, I love the whole indigenous model of cooperation rather than competition, but I'm not really sure how we change, <laughs> change that because there are people with $100 billion that have the power to pretty much control whatever they want to control. And they're the ones with the big philanthropic um, nonprofits that are doing more harm than good. So do you want to talk a bit about your experience in, you know, philanthropy that does more harm than good versus philanthropy <laughs> that actually does good and 
Yeah. No, you have a good point. I mean, the, the incentives in the financial industry are, are, are really not aligned with what we're talking about, right? They're not aligned with co- uh, cooperation. And, um, you know, it, it's really, really, we're trying to turn the Titanic around here in some ways with what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, I, I think that um, what what is becoming more known by the public is that um, the the, the danger in sort of like billionaire philanthropy, right? How undemocratic it can be. And um, the, the illusion uh, that has been a part of the public um, sort of interpretation of philanthropy is beginning to be stripped away. Part of that is the work and the organize that we're doing, but folks are beginning to see there's a danger when one person single-handedly has the fortune to invest in like education, for example, in a way that they see that education should be delivered in this country. And they're able to like build schools across the country and change the way that uh, curriculum is developed and taught. Like one person should not have the opportunity to do that when education is a public good that we the people have a system um, through the way we elect school boards or so forth and so on to make those decisions. And so we've seen the harm that can come about when, when there's not an accountability there. What power we have as like regular people is that we need to push for um, legislation um, that will require these folks to pay taxes. Not only are these folks getting tax write-offs for uh, their philanthropy, they also don't pay taxes. And so they're not participating in the democratic system of redistributing wealth to support safety net um, or education or whatever it might be in the way that we we are all collectively deciding together through that system. They're not participating and yet they have this other tier to influence all of these things in a very private way. And that's really dangerous to our democracy. So there are ways that we can come together to to really push for and advocate that corporations and that people pay their fair share of taxes. We can also begin to, there is legislation that has come up uh, that is beginning to surface for the first time in a long, long time that would uh, require there be um, more regulations and transparency behind philanthropies because the general public is beginning to acknowledge some of the dangers um, that can um, be present when we're not holding these institutions and people accountable. And speaking of all that, um, do you want to go into your work as in the Decolonizing Wealth Project? I mean, what are you trying to achieve and what have you done? So, you know, the, the first edition of the book that came out in 2018 really uh, created a platform for us to do other work. Um, it became a, a, a bestseller to my surprise. Uh, you know, um, that was uh, not anything that I was anticipating. And that changed my life because it opened the door for me to be able to have this conversation with a lot of um, people and a lot of people in power. Uh, one thing that happened is that a lot of philanthropists, millionaires and billionaires begin to come to me and say, okay, Edgar, um, I wanna talk with you about my philanthropy. What, should, what am I doing wrong? How do I, how do I get it right? What can I change? And um, you know, the big thing that I um, say to these folks is like, I want you to turn your money over actually to people who are in communities and let us make the decision about those resources. How can you, as a person who lives with so much privilege, how can you know best for our communities? And so we created a fund called Liberated Capital um, that is a community now, more than 350 donors um, who give either once a year or monthly, however they wanna set that up. 
And we also have begun uh, began to serve as a intermediary for a lot of the larger foundations to take their money and then to redistribute that money to, to people and organizations 100% led by indigenous and black folks. And we have advisory boards who make decisions about that money. The folks who give us their money, it's very much like a reparations model. They get zero input into where and how we use that money. It's basically give us your money, trust us that we are going to redistribute that into our communities in a self-determined way. And so it's shifting the power from the traditional model of, of centering a donor and their wishes and their intents to really centering and putting that power in community to decide. So our, our first full year of operations last year at Liberated Capital, we raised $5 million and redistributed that. And we, we hope to double that in the next year. And so it's a model to show that Philanthropy can do good. Uh, we can put limited restrictions on the community and really trust people living in poverty or, or on you know, the front lines of, of fighting for change in communities. Really trust them that they know best for, for how these resources should be deployed. And, um, you know, and it's not about just taking money for the rich, but it's also inviting those folks into a circle and saying, hey, you have money, right? And like there's privilege with that, but you also need healing. You also need to be a part of the solution. So you don't get to dictate what happens with this money, but you are invited into a circle of healing where we can all talk about reparations and the, and, and the truth about money and what needs to change in the world so that we can all um, come together, right, and and find healing. So it's been really phenomenal to hold healing summits, and to we have um, healers on our staff and in our community that are that are working in, in these different spaces that we provide. And we're also just doing a number of things to promote the idea of healing, rec reconciliation, reparations. We just launched the very first fund ever in the in America that is solely focused on supporting folks fighting for reparations. And we made $1.7 million in grants to 23 organizations around the country and coalitions who are advocating for all types of reparation campaigns, including HR 40, uh, which is a um, legislation that's moving through at the national level to establish a commission on reparations in the United States. So it's been busy, very exciting times. Yeah, uh, that's great. Well, if I uh, just add another word about public banking, I mean, that's our model as well, is that you've got to have local public banks that know your local businesses. So, and well, the Germans do that with their Sparkasm banks, where the local public bank is limited to a certain locality and and they actually help with the business plans of these businesses because they want them to pay back and it's a very viable model but you need somebody on the ground i mean you need the people that are right there to be making the decisions for how do we distribute this in our case it's how do you distribute this credit because they're loans of course but yeah same model well that's great really do you have any personal anecdotes you'd like to share because you're good with anecdotes i mean i i, I really enjoyed just getting a sense of you and your story and who you were and that yeah. sort of thing. It has been really, um, you know, the, the past year has been a trip, you know, for everyone. 2020, right, was uh, with the pandemic, with the uprisings for racial justice. You know, I'm continuing to, to grow and to learn so much. And I think that, you know, um, if there's any silver lining in 2020, I, I do think that there 
um, was a moment where I could feel the collective sort of like grieving and suffering of our country. And in a way that I, I really hope help, uh, helped us tap into our common humanity, right? And regardless of where you sit in the world, um, we, we all experience some kind of loss or pain. We all know someone who passed away from COVID probably. And there was just so much death around. So I'm really kind of taking away personally, you know, I lost both of my grandmothers in 2020, um, uh, not to COVID, but um, still experienced that loss. And um, so I'm still really trying to learn and grow and understand what are the lessons that we should be learning and taking with us. Um, what really resonated for me, kind of going back to your point, Ellen, about local and, and public banks and the critical role that they play, um, you know, during this um, time of crisis response, there were just so many beautiful mutual aid kind of things popping up all around the country and local institutions were really the backbone for providing the best support, right? Because we, we know that these groups are in communities. We did a, a program to get direct cash payments to um, more than 2,100 Native American families in the country that were impacted by COVID. And we could not have done that without public banks and local institutions that partner with us to get checks to folks. 30% um, of the folks we were trying to help in, in the Southwest part of the country were not even banked. And so we, we had initiatives to help folks get into, um, get banked at local institutions so that they actually could cash those checks and begin to get some financial literacy and support to think about um, how to get, take care of their families during this time. So hats off to um, many credit unions that I've worked with, many public banks who really are staffed by folks who come from communities that we're serving and, and, and really are, um, are, are working hard to support entrepreneurs and small businesses. They play a vital role. And I saw that happen time and time again over this past year. So um, I just wanted to, I, I guess, kind of tip my hat to the space you're working in, Ellen, and um, the many, many ways I saw local banks stepping up um, to support communities. Well, thanks. And to your point that uh, money can be a tool for ill and which most people think of it, you know, money is the root of all evil or whatever, but, but it's also, it can also be a tool for good, but we have to capture it for the good. I mean, somehow we, the people have to get control and set up a model that actually works. That's not corruptible. That's the problem. I don't think we've ever had a model ever in history that couldn't be corrupted or that didn't you know, corruption didn't creep in there somehow and manipulate it in ways that big money corrupts it. And I'm not really sure what to do about that, but it's great. You know, your line of work is great. You know, I think I would just, I would leave people with, with this. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned money uh, being medicine and um, kind of what you said just a moment ago, Ellen, that, you know, there's this connotation with money sometimes that is like, the root of all evil and all these kinds of things. And there was a moment in time in my work around money that I felt um, felt that a little bit. I was like, maybe, you know, I'm seeing like the corruption. I'm seeing how, how people are behaving, even philanthropists, right? And so I thought maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I should work somewhere else. I don't feel like I'm making an impact. And it really was, you know, a moment of enlightenment for me when I was meeting with one of my elders back in North Carolina and it was actually she who said to me that the medicine that had chosen me is money. 
And that was really such a confusing statement because I was thinking like, how can money be medicine? How can money be sacred when it's like all these bad things too? And I've really come to understand exactly what you said that um, it's not about the money, really. It's about us. Like money is just a, it's just paper, right? Or, or, or it's bites on a computer or whatever numbers, right? Um, It's really about us, we, the people and how we, deploy resources or how we choose to hoard resources. And if we can somehow tap into some way to, to shift away from this need to be, um, you know, to hoard and, and the scarcity mindsets, if we can understand the concept of having enough, like, right. And like being secure in that and, and get back to being rooted in relationships, because that's where, you know, the money won't save us at the end of the day. It's really about relationships and connections. If we fall into need, knowing that our community will take care of us, that's so important. So, you know, so I guess I invite folks, especially folks who work in, around money and in finance and banking to, to really understand that money can be medicine and how we deploy money and how we use it uh, is really uh, important. It can contribute to, to healing and restoring communities if we are really using money in, in sort of a sacred way. And that's that's my goal. And it's where you bank matters, um, where you choose how you're investing your retirement dollars matter, where you choose to do business and which vendors you're using. All those are ways that we make decisions every day about our dollar. And we don't have to be Bill Gates or whoever, whether we have $5 or $5 million, what, how we choose to use it can really be a part of the solution. Um, so. I invite everyone to kind of think about that and and using their dollar towards towards healing. Yeah, I, this whole it seems to me that we need the whole country to be a community, which you would have to set up legally. We need a system that actually does provide a safety net without. I mean, I know there's lots of ways you can abuse that. And so, you know, it's a tricky issue how you would set that up. But there are a lot of people that just don't have a tribe you know, or to, where I live. I mean, I have no relatives here. My kids are abroad, one's in Switzerland, one's in Colombia. And, you know, I live in a senior village, so that's good. But there are people out in the street, you know, that have no community at all, except their homeless community, which are actually pretty big communities here in Los Angeles. But somehow we need to set up a system that actually takes care of everyone without being exploitable. Okay, so we'll keep working on that. Thank you. Um, and your website is decolonizingwealth.com, right? Sure. If folks are on social media, they can uh, follow um, at Villanueva Edgar, my last name, my first name. And, uh, you know, I invite everyone to check out the website. Um, the donor community I mentioned, Liberated Capital, is um, there's an open invite for anyone who's interested in being a part of that community. We don't have any limitations. If folks give $5, $5,000 a month, it, it varies. And all of those resources are supporting really amazing work. Um, and we we share updates on a regular basis on how we're using that money. And it's really, it's really amazing that, you know, 350 people and a handful of foundations were able to kind of come up with $5 million, right? And yes. a lot of small <laughs> gifts added up. And um, and those dollars literally saved lives during the pandemic. So if folks are looking for a community where they're wanting to pull their money and, and give, we're, you're welcome to check out Liberated Capital on our, uh, you know, on our website as well. Okay, great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you and good luck with your work. Thank you, Ellen, so much. Thanks for having me on. Okay. 
I've been speaking with Edgar Villanueva, um, who is the author of Decolonizing Wealth and head of the Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital. Healing money? Well, both the abundance of money and the scarcity of money have caused real human suffering and harm in their various applications, but both are pivotal concerns for how we intend to build a world that works for everyone. Now, that notion in itself is a paradigm shift that demands our attention, since it is at the heart of whether this world will continue to work for humans at all. Our next guests approach this concern by addressing the role of philanthropy, again, philanthropy meaning the love of humankind, and they see philanthropy as a key player in both locking down the existing discriminatory practices by which rich folk decide who gets a taste of some of the proceeds of that capital wealth, and also how that wealth determines pivotal public policies. The philanthropic industry shares exceedingly small amounts of the captured capital wealth it represents. It's held in a trillion-dollar industry, Yet we hold philanthropy in high regard, since those funds do make a difference in the many causes to which they're lent. But who makes those choices? Our first guest in this section of the program is Mark Watson, the president of Potlicker Capital, whose background as a capital investor has taken a dynamic new approach to philanthropy. After three decades of working uh, in finance from public to corporate to impact investing really is giving me an interesting purview of the possibilities and the challenges around capital. And one of the takeaways I'd like to offer to your audience is to not divorce philanthropy from other types of capital. It's really a reductionist view to view capitalism in one box and then on the side is sort of this grant uh, resource. Mm -hmm. I also would argue uh, that the grant resource has value. It has value to provide R&D capital. It is able to absorb risk that other types of capital does not. Um, the issue here is around power and yes. those grant resources. And I would also argue that the fact that, that the way philanthropy is distributed is provincial, uh, is not a new idea. I mean, from feudal systems, from uh, land being given, there, there's always strings attached to it. So this is not a new paradigm. What we're offering is to discuss ways that we can actually introduce a new paradigm where you are taking dollars that have received some sort of tax benefit from the public sector and leaving the power in the public commons and not necessarily still tethering the direction of those dollars to private interests. That connection has not been broken, which is why we still see private interests being furthered through grant dollars. So I'm hoping that, that we can braid all sorts of capital together and move that within the, the governance structure of the common interests so that we actually can have systemic structural solutions, which is a challenge in the way things are distributed today. 
Mark continues with how his philanthropic organization, Potlicker Capital, returns not just money, but the power to determine how that money is used to beneficiaries. This idea replicates what we heard earlier from Edgar Villanueva with what he calls liberating capital. I've raised the issue of power and money being connected in ways that may not be constructive for overall society. One of the areas that I have focused a lot of my energies for half of my career is to create contexts in which money can come into the governance structure of a broader community-governed entity. And Potlicker Capital, which is a supporting entity to an entity called Jubilee Justice, is one of those examples. Potlicker Capital focus is to deploy reparative capital. So that's a double entendre on reparations and repairing systems within the black and indigenous people of color owned farms in the US, primarily in the South, Southeast and the West Coast. And the issue there is to understand number one, that the debt is actually owed by society and not this group of folks who've been disenfranchised for centuries, if not decades. In this case, there is a covenant of any donor or any impact investor, if they buy a note or make a grant, that they are absolving themselves of any influence beyond that gift or that investment. And that they are entrusting a community-led, in this case, a majority BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, led board and investment committee to decide the way the committee and the communities need to receive those dollars. And that's the entity that actually allocates the gifts that are provided. So it's a mechanism that is a um, almost deaccessioning entity between the power that actually generated those resources and perhaps caused much of the harm to providing resources or reparative capital, investment capital, philanthropic capital, and giving it back to the, the commons and often the very communities that have been disadvantaged or, or impaired. It's, an, it's not a novel concept. I think globally it is novel in the U.S. given uh, the way our financial system has been set up and certainly the philanthropic structure. Another guest, Ed Cavetto, who is head of practice of the Foresight Lab and a previous guest on this program, brings his philosophical rendering of what philanthropy really embodies and talks about regenerative philanthropy, the notion that our intentions will lead to lasting regenerative outcomes that fuel good works and needs. We need to acknowledge the good works before we get on to what regenerative philanthropy might look like. The good works are worth celebrating. Our society's culture, the groundswell of the human spirit that innervates everything we do in life that really matters, not including most work, comes from philanthropy. Our museums, uh, research and development, institutions of higher learning, um, schools. The philanthropic or donative gesture is at its heart a good one in the sense that it fuels our culture. And in the United States, since we don't have a ministry of culture, we're pretty confused about what culture is, but most civilized countries have a ministry of culture that holds the brief for cultivating culture. We don't, but that's part of a larger discussion. But setting aside the good works, 
we need to acknowledge that every single philanthropist that we revere, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, were the Jeff Bezos of their day. And as much as we might feel that Jeff Bezos has given hundreds of thousands of people jobs, they are certainly not jobs of dignity and purpose. They are certainly not jobs that elevate the human spirit and stand for what work should be. And these mostly men who have these revered status, Carnegie started the National Library System, for goodness sake, but he was a guy who hired goons to beat his employees to prevent them from unionizing. So let's just speak the truth about this. It is a question whether the magnetic force of donative intention by companies and rich people is really the tax break or the good and acknowledging that there is a lot of really good intention. So let's talk about intention. Money is a false reality. It is the intention behind it that informs either the richness or the poverty of the gesture. And one of the problems with American philanthropy is that it doesn't have a gesture of uplifting. It has the gesture of maintaining the very colonialistic reality that exists because the means and mechanisms by which donors and rich philanthropists, with some wonderful exceptions, the means and mechanisms by which they gather their wealth is the immiseration of the very people they in the second half of their lives, because they either get sued, smart, or feel guilty, they're now taking a little bit of the pain away that they cause with their very corporate capitalistic activities. And I'm hyperbolizing to be provocative to help our listeners and viewers think about these things in a richer way. And I'll close by saying regenerative philanthropy is simple. If, if a dollar is given with the attention of uplifting the soul, spirit, humanity, and well-being of whoever is the recipient in all of its majesty, then that is a donative intent that we can get behind and that will shift power and build institutions. If it's anything else, it's reinforcing a very, very broken status quo. Mark Watson continues that thread with a holistic look at the industry of philanthropy. In order to, to catalyze structural change, there has to be recognition that the, all things happen in an ecosystem and ecosystems get fertilized to grow. We're talking about regeneration, right? So the water, if you imagine that you have a field and you decide to water one-tenth of the field with some nutrients, but ignore the other 90%, you still have no crop. Right. And I would argue that is, is sort of the mode of philanthropy and impact investing today. We're focused on specific transactions. And that happens, I think, sometimes because there is no intention for structural change. But often, I just want to introduce a second concept. Capital is also knowledge-based. So it is rare that any one entity, institution, or person can hold all the complexity of a system and all the interactions. So this whole discussion around power and governance and resources, not just money, but knowledge and policy initiatives, et cetera, necessarily requires a broader convening of many voices who have pieces of the puzzle or the knowledge of how an ecosystem works. So that's where finance can, can be part of the, the juice but it doesn't solve the intention part that Ed has brought up, which is how do you have a collective intention that's well-informed? Right. And how does one, how possibly could even one institution or one 
well-meaning individual hold that vision and the knowledge of how things interact when making that philanthropic investment. Public banks, charitable loan funds, like pot liquor and other projects are all ways to do that. And they not only blend financial capital, but they also blend policy access. They also bring in R&D. The last thing I wanted to mention on this is these dollars that have been spent to date by these particular entrepreneurs are the R&D dollars that will then eventually influence policy and bring in private capital. But it's through a narrow lens of the folks that actually made the, in the, the investment. It's not any different for other structural change. It's just that we need to broaden the table. A metaphor of what we're trying to do with a charitable loan fund that is designed not just to bring in dollars, but again, this covenant around dollars coming in with an intention of being reparative. So that number wow. one is creating new institutions where the intention is to, to be reparative, not to seek only profit, not only to do advocacy, not only to do charitable work, but to be reparative. And reparative is a broad-based term because it recognizes like the black farmers in the US, the crisis that they are in came about not just because of disinvestment financially, it came about because of egregious public policy and government agencies. So if that's how the problems in these crises are created, the same with children, then the solution has to be equally complex. And so one of the ways to do that is to reconnect. You talk about regeneration. My focus is to build these opportunities for communities to come back together and share knowledge and make decisions around resource uh, deployment and become nodes of what we want to move toward. Our thanks to Ed Cavetto of the Foresight Lab and Mark Watson of Pot Liquor Capital for this conversation about American philanthropy. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.